Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening. Welcome to Campbell Hall. Everybody's so happy tonight. It's so happy to ha I'm so happy to have you here. My name is Celeste Balecci. I'm the director of UCSB Arts and Lectures. It's my great privilege to have you here in the hall tonight. Um, we've had an amazing round of lectures in this past fall. And if you're not on our mailing list, uh, you should get on it because we have some big lectures we're going to be announcing in winter quarter. So we hope that you'll be a part of that program as well. Um, tonight, I really am excited about having Maureen Dowd. I know everybody in this community for years has been asking us to bring her, and we are so honored and privileged to have her here on our campus. And these things don't happen without support, as you know. I'm always up here thanking those people, but they really do keep this program alive for the university and for all of you in the community. And first, I'd like to start by thanking Julie and Jamie Kellner, who so generously opened their house tonight, their amazing, beautiful home, to host many of you tonight. And thank you so much for that support. thank all of you who bought a ticket for that event to support this program as well. And also, I would like to very much thank uh, Meg and Dan Burnham because they are completely made this event possible for all of you here tonight. So please join me in thanking them. Just a little bit about the format tonight. Ms. Dowd will give her presentation and then afterwards she'll be taking questions and from all of you in the audience. There are two microphones down here at the stage. Please come down and she'll be doing that. And immediately afterwards, she'll be signing books up here on the stage. There are books in her books for sale in the lobby from Borders. I also would personally like to thank Roman Baratiak and my staff who worked very hard to make tonight possible. <clears throat> Maureen Dowd, winner of the 1999 Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Commentary, became a columnist on the New York Times op-ed page in 1995, after having served as a correspondent in the paper's Washington bureau since 1986. She has covered four presidential campaigns and served as White House correspondent. She also wrote a column on Washington for the New York Times Magazine. Ms. Dowd joined the New York Times as a metropolitan reporter in 1983, and she began her career in 1974 as an editorial assistant for the Washington Star, where she later became a sports columnist, metropolitan reporter, and feature writer. When the Star closed in 1981, she went to Time magazine. And in 2004, she released her first book, a collection of columns titled Bush World, Enter at Your Own Risk. Her second book followed in 2005, Are Men Necessary When Sexes Collide? Please join me in welcoming to our stage here in Santa Barbara the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Ms. Maureen Dowd. Can you guys hear me? Yes. I'm losing my voice. It's probably just psychosomatic nerves. And I've got war and peace here, literally war and peace. <laughs> so um, let's see if I can make it through. Flying from Paris to Berlin on O Force One with Barack Obama on his Citizen of the World tour last summer, when world leaders fawned so much over him that even he seemed surprised. I scored an airborne interview with the one, or, or as John McCain called him, that one. 
I asked some hard-hitting questions and got some brutally frank answers. He revealed to me that he brought his daughter's snow globes on every trip. Well, he didn't actually do it himself. He had an aide do it. So, you have a snow globe aide, I asked, keeping the pressure on. Yes, he admitted. The biggest scoop I got was when he told me that his meeting with Angela Merkel taught him a whole new expression. When they were talking about Iran, it turns out that carrots and sticks in German is sweetbread and whips, <laughs> which Obama said he found a far more evocative expression. At the end of the interview, he asked if he could talk to me alone for a minute. His press secretaries, Robert Gibbs and Linda Douglas, disappeared. I figured now I was really going to get some inside dope, the sort of juicy stuff the New York Times columnist Scotty Reston got from JFK or Bob Woodward got from W. I smiled, but Obama didn't flash his killer grin. He was looking at me somberly, his brown eyes locked into my brown eyes. You're really irritating me, he said. <laughs> yeah. While I was still sitting there in shock, thinking Mr. Supercool, possibly soon to be President Supercool leader of the free world, thought I was irritating, he repeated it. It wasn't the moment I dreamed of. <laughs> Afterwards, at lunch in Berlin, I was complaining to Richard Wolff, a British reporter from Newsweek, that Obama didn't like me. He was huffy with me, and that made me huffy with him. Oh, my God, Richard said. He's Mr. Darcy, and you're Elizabeth Bennet. <laughs> Obama was proud and I was prejudiced. <laughs> Obama, who had beat the most powerful chick in the country in the Democratic primary, does bear a distinct resemblance to the most cherished hero in chick lit history. Like the leading man of Jane Austen and Bridget Jones, Obama can, as Austen wrote, draw, quote, the attention of the room by his fine, tall person, handsome features, noble mane. He was looked at with great admiration for about half the evening, till his manners gave a disgust which turned the tide of his popularity, for he was discovered to be proud, to be above his company and above being pleased." Unquote. Mr. Darcy, the master of Pemberley, quote, had yet to learn to be laughed at, Austin wrote. And this sometimes caused a deeper shade of hauteur to overspread his features. I saw that look of disgust personally during the Texas primary when we were flying above Texas on the Obama charter plane and the reporters were served barbecue ribs. I was starving and wolfing down the messy meal and had managed to completely smear myself with barbecue sauce from my face to my hands to the magazine I was reading, which was a Newsweek story about Obama with pictures. <laughs> Suddenly I looked up to see the real Obama looming above me, looking perfectly crisp and men's vogue slender in a white shirt chewing a Nicorette. <laughs> he had clearly not 
been partaking of the barbecue. Maybe because he was a bit chubby as a child in Hawaii, his eating habits now make Jennifer Aniston look like Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> He's like those Hollywood starlets who consider an Altoid a three-course meal. <laughs> Anyhow, Obama looked down at the Newsweek with his picture smeared with barbecue sauce and then gave me a glance of complete disdain. You got barbecue sauce in my ear, he said, sounding wounded. The New Hampshire debate incident, in which Obama condescendingly said, you're likable enough, Hillary, was reminiscent of that early scene in Pride and Prejudice, when Mr. Darcy coldly refuses to dance with Elizabeth Bennet, noting, she is tolerable, but not handsome enough to tempt me. Indeed, when Obama left a prayer to the Lord at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, a note that was snatched out and published, part of his plea was to, quote, help me guard against pride, unquote. W campaigned on having a humble foreign policy and a bipartisan administration, so you can't always trust in mere words, even if the words are as pretty as Barack Obama's. In his victory speech at Grant Park in Chicago, the freshly minted president-elect professed humility and talked about how everyone would have to pull together and resist the temptation to fall back on the same partisanship and pettiness and immaturity that has poisoned our politics for so long. Promising to also be president for those who opposed him, Obama quoted Abraham Lincoln, his political idol and the man who ended slavery. Quote, we are not enemies but friends. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection, unquote. It was an astonishing, breathtaking moment, the election of the first black or half-black president. I think Newsweek's Jonathan Alter summed it up best when he said, just think, Barack Obama would have been treated as property under the first 16 presidents of the United States. It was particularly amazing for me because I was raised in the nation's capital and I grew up in a black neighborhood and the city to this day has never been fully integrated. For the first time the week after the election, I saw ebony and ivory images that were harmonizing, not polarizing. Instead of an image of black law students in Washington cheering the OJ not guilty verdict, this time I saw black and white college students having a block party together in front of the White House, singing, na 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 na, hey hey hey, goodbye. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I saw blacks and whites all over Washington trying to connect and make awkward small talk. As civil rights activist Andrew Young told Stephen Colbert, the world got so messed up, nobody else wanted to really tackle it, so then they turned it over to us. <laughs> and it was thrilling to see Barack Obama come from nowhere, overcome so many obstacles, including the biggest dragon-slaying moment in modern politics, overcoming the fearsome and bullying Clinton machine, get elected president at the tender age of 47, and then not have any of the people who raised him or brought him into the world alive to see him elected and sworn in. His beloved grandmother, Toots, who raised him from the age of 10, an impressive woman who rose from a Rosie the Riveter role in World War II as an aircraft inspector for Boeing, 
to be one of the Bank of Hawaii's first female vice presidents, died at 86, the day before he beat John McCain. To me, the most poignant moments of his election night speech were when he talked about a 106-year-old woman who was born just a generation past slavery, at a time when people of her color and gender did not have the right to vote, and when he led his mother-in-law, Marian Robinson, who was raised in segregated Chicago in the 50s, and Joe Biden's silver-haired mother, whom Biden calls Mom-Mom, up to the front of the stage as honored surrogates for his own missing parents and grandparents. I had been amazed during the campaign, not by the covert racism about Obama and Michelle, and not by Hillary Clinton's subtext when she insisted to superdelegates, he can't win. But I've been astonished by the overt willingness of some people who didn't mind being quoted by name in the New York Times saying vile stuff that a President Obama would turn the Rose Garden into a watermelon patch, that he'd make the White House the Black House, and that he'd have barbecues on the front lawn. I could testify from personal experience that he's just not that into barbecue. <laughs> Even though many people across the country and the world are excited, there is still some work to be done in America on exercising prejudices. A friend of mine, Michael Spector, a New Yorker staff writer, emailed me last week that he was reporting at the Creationist Museum in Kentucky when news broke that Obama and his chief of staff-to-be, Rahm Emanuel, were talking to Hillary Clinton about taking the Secretary of State job. He heard the following conversation between a woman in line getting lunch with her husband at the museum cafeteria called Noah's Cafe. This is wonderful, the woman said sarcastically. Now our country is going to be run by a Negro, a Jew, and that horrible woman. <laughs> Actually, the elegant and disciplined Obama, who is not descended from the central African-American experience, but who has nonetheless embraced it and been embraced by it, has the chance to make the White House pristine again. As a native, I love the Washington monuments, but they had lost their luminescence in recent years. How could the White House be classy when the Clintons were turning it into a Motel 1600 for fundraising? when Bill was using it for Tris with an intern, and when he plunked a seven-seat hot tub with two moto massager jets on the lawn? How could the White House be inspiring when W and Cheney were inside making torture and domestic spying legal, fooling Americans by cooking up warped evidence for war and scheming how to further enrich their buddies in the oil and gas industry? How could the Lincoln Memorial, with malice toward none, with charity for all, be as moving if the black neighborhoods of a charming and unique American city like New Orleans were left to drown while the president mountain biked in Crawford? How could the National Archives, home of the Constitution, be as momentous if the president and vice president spent their days making paper airplanes with the Constitution? How could the black marble V of the Vietnam Memorial have power when those in power repeat the mistake of Vietnam? 
How could the Capitol, where my dad proudly worked for so many years, a DC police detective who was in charge of Senate security, how can the Capitol hold its allure when the occupants have spent their days and years bickering and scoring petty political points instead of stopping White House chicanery and taking on risky big issues? How can the FDR memorial along the Tidal Basin be an uplifting tour to the past when the bronze statue of five stooped men in a breadline and the words of FDR's second inaugural, I see one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, and ill-nourished, evokes the depressing present? And how can the chiefs of the three major automakers all arrive in Washington this week in their own separate corporate jets. As Congressman Gary Ackerman said, it was like arriving at a soup kitchen wearing black tie and tails. <laughs> Obama may be in over his head, or he may be heading for his own monument someday. The former constitutional law professor said on 60 Minutes Sunday that he wants to close Guantanamo Bay and stop torture. For me, It was such a relief after the last eight years of feeling that America was reeling backwards on so many things, its values, its progress in science and human rights, the depletion of its military, to hear someone talk about moving America into the future. And at least Obama does not refer, as John McCain does, to a Google. The president-elect said he hoped to project confidence and, quote, a, willing to, a willingness to try things, unquote. And I think he said that's what the American people expect. You know, they're not expecting miracles. He said average Americans simply wanted a guy who was going to be straight with them and work really hard for them. As Obama channels Honest Abe, wanting a team of rivals for his cabinet, or a team of frenemies, as I call them. <laughs> He's even considering appointing Hillary Clinton, the woman who tried to bite his ear off for 18 months as Secretary <laughs> of State. Lincoln appointed a New York Senator, William Seward, as his Secretary of State. He promptly bought Alaska, known as Seward's Folly, which ended up bringing us the folly of Sarah Palin. <laughs> I think Hillary as Secretary of State is a cool idea. At long last, the feminist icon would represent the feminist ideal of getting a room of her own all on her own. Running for the Senate and the presidency, Hillary felt entitled to get the money, endorsement, and support because she was the wife of Bill Clinton and at times the victim of Bill Clinton. Just think, Bill Clinton's presidency and legacy would have been completely different if he had just spoken two simple sentences. Pull up your pants, young lady. This is the Oval Office. <laughs> if Hillary became the mistress of Foggy Bottom, she would be getting the job despite her husband. And because of her own transformation in the primaries from a legacy applicant to a scrappy one, of course, Bill is going to have to answer the strict 63-question Obama vetting document, including giving up any internet aliases he has. 
that could be dicey, and handing over any diaries. Just consider question number eight. Describe the most controversial matters you have been involved with during the course of your career. <laughs> that would take a book and has. On the downside, Hillary would be taking over a big and demoralized government bureaucracy after proving with her campaign that she does not know how to run a big and demoralized group of people. <laughs> but on the upside, she would never have to exaggerate her foreign policy resume again. This time, she really would be brokering peace and flying into places where they'd try to fire at her. If Obama chooses Hillary, a woman who clearly intimidated him and taught him to be a better Paul in the primaries, it doesn't signal the return of the Clinton era. It says the opposite. If you have a president who's willing to open up his universe to other strong, smart people, if you have a big dog who shares his food dish, the narcissistic Bill Clinton era is truly over. Appointing... <laughs> Appointing a Clinton in the cabinet would be so un-Clintonian. <laughs> there are an awful lot of old Clintonites in the new Obama land, though, including Rahm Emanuel, the soon-to-be chief of staff. His brother, Ari Emanuel, is the model for Jeremy Piven's hot-headed agent, Ari Gold, on Entourage. When Rahm was an aide in the Clinton White House, Hillary fired him one day. But he told her he wouldn't leave unless Bill told him to go, knowing that Bill would never have the nerve to do it. Rom just kept working there. <laughs> Rom is unique in Washington history, and not just because the tough Chicago native swears more than anyone in town. He lost part of his right middle finger in a meat slicing machine when he worked as a teenager at Arby's. Obama once joked that because of Rom's tendency for obscene gestures, this had the effect of rendering him practically mute. <laughs> now, Rom is unique because he is the first White House chief of staff to have worn tights. That we know of, that is. Rom was a ballet dancer at Sarah Lawrence College and kept up with his dance studies when he moved to D.C. When President Clinton would drop Chelsea off for lessons at Washington School of Ballet, he'd see his top advisor, Rom, coming out. <laughs> Obama once joked at a roast of Rom that Emmanuel was the first to adopt Machiavelli's The Prince for dance. <laughs> It was an intriguing piece, as you can imagine, Obama said. There were lots of kicks below the belt. <laughs> I've covered seven presidential campaigns, always in high heels and often in high dudgeon, but never one as zany as this. Even Evelyn Waugh couldn't have dreamed this up. Who could have imagined a fashionable, brilliant, Princeton and Harvard-educated first lady who was descended from South Carolina slaves. Who could have imagined that Barack Obama, the first black man who could be chief executive, would end up locked in a sometimes nasty Democratic primary competition for the black vote with Bill Clinton, the man dubbed the first black president by Toni Morrison? The gender roles were permanently scrambled in this race. Hillary was described by her supporter, Jack Nicholson, as the best man for the job. 
He made an ad for her using the classic line from A Few Good Men. There's nothing sexier, gentlemen, than a woman you have to salute in the morning. And I wrote a column describing Obama as having a more feminine style of management than Hillary, collegial and inclusive, whereas hers tended to be alpha and abrasive. During the Democratic primary, when Sarah Palin was still watching the action from the last frontier of Alaska, she had criticized Hillary Clinton for whining about sexist treatment by the media. She said women just had to get on with it and not complain. But then, in a preemptive strike to try to cover up Palin's inadequacies, the McCain campaign whined about the sexist treatment of Palin by the media. They ended up with a mixed message, treating their tough frontier woman like a delicate Fabergé egg in an overprotective, chauvinistic way. Who would have imagined that the voters, especially young voters, who would seem curiously apathetic about the war in Iraq, would suddenly find politics enthralling. They treated the primaries and caucuses like the American Idol finals, <laughs> eager to show that they can play a role in the outcome, not settling for a pat Hollywood ending. It's like when my sister dolls in 11 times to vote for Susan Lucci on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> she can actually change the result. After so many years of being lethargic about politics, Americans seem to have woken up to how much fun it is. You could only appreciate this race if you had, as I did, covered Michael Dukakis for a year. <laughs> His idea of reading for pleasure was a book called Swedish Land Use Planning. Once, scurrying after him on an airport tarmac, I asked what he did for fun. Black mulch, he called back at me. Black mulch, I asked, wondering if that was some kinky Boston thing. I put black mulch on my tomato plants, he said as he ran off. Bob Dole's campaign was even worse. He spent a year acting like the grumpy old guy who wanted to turn the garden house on young lovers on Valentine's Day. He just looked like he longed to be back in his apartment in the Watergate watching C-SPAN on his treadmill. John Kerry's campaign was painful as well. As my colleague Gil Collins wrote Saturday, although Kerry has many excellent qualities and his children appear to be very fond of him, <laughs> if there was a contest for a senator you would least want to have a cup of coffee with, he would be a good bet for the top 10. <laughs> the only free saw of excitement came when his rather self-absorbed wife and bank card, the billionaire catch-up heiress, Teresa Heinz Carey, would introduce him and then get so caught up in the wonder of her own speech that she'd forget to introduce him. <laughs> she would summon him over sometimes to get her a bottled water so she could keep talking to stunned black and Hispanic audiences about her immigrant experience. Her dad was a prosperous Portuguese doctor in colonial Mozambique, but she cast herself as a third worlder and a daughter of Africa. There were many long, tedious campaigns that journalists slogged through before we found the love of our lives. Sarah Palin. <laughs> yeah, I love her. I do.
I miss her desperately. She came out of the woods with her own special language, like Nell, as John Stewart said. A lady lost in the corn maze of her full Alaskan wind, wind song, as Tina Fey said. Once she bounded onto the stage in St. Paul, wearing a Valentino $2,500 beige silk jacket from Saks, and inspiring lust in the heart of Rush Limbaugh, who yelled, Babies, guns, Jesus, hot damn. <laughs> she became God's gift to journalism and comedy. The comely and charismatic Alaska governor was so out of the blue, such an unexpected and unorthodox figure on the political scene, that she seemed surreal at times less like a presidential campaign and more like a Hollywood chick flick starring Sandra Bullock. <laughs> Movie mayhem ensues when in a wild stroke of fate, the two-year governor of an oversized igloo becomes commander-in-chief <laughs> after the president-elect chokes on a pretzel. The movie ends with the former beauty queen shaking out her pinned-up hair, taking off her glasses, slipping on a Valentino bulletproof dress, ruby red peep-toe platform heels that reveal a pink French-style pedicure, and facing down Vladimir Putin on an island off the Bering Strait. Putting away her breast pump, she points. <laughs> yeah. She points her rifle at him and informs him frostily that she has some expertise in Alaska, in Russia, because it's close to Alaska, and it's time for him to shoo. Dog on it, back off, commie dude, or you're going to be in a world of hurt, she says. I'm a much better shot than Cheney. <laughs> then she takes off in her seaplane and lands on the White House lawn, near the new hockey rink that has replaced the old tennis courts. The first dude, as she calls her hunky Eskimo husband in the East Wing, waits on his snowmobile with the kids. The PTA is great preparation for dealing with the KGB, President Palin murmurs to Todd, as they kiss in the final scene while she changes Trigg's diaper. Now that Georgia's safe from Russia, how about I cook you up some caribou hot dogs and moose chili for dinner, babe? Matt Lauer and Greta Von Susteren are coming over. God bless them, you betcha. Fade out. If there are any Hollywood moguls here, it's all yours for free. <laughs> Sarah Palin has tapped into the frontier myth in politics, and that's a very powerful myth. Ronald Reagan rode in from the western frontier to clean up the Dodge of Washington. The blue-blooded Bush family played up their odyssey to red-blooded Texas. They went from driving a limousine 
to kindergarten in Greenwich, Connecticut, to acting like JR in Dallas and the oil business in Midland. The late great liberal Texas columnist Molly Ivins was skeptical about Poppy Bush being a true Texan, even after he'd hidden away his striped preppy watch band and started putting Tabasco on his tuna fish sandwiches and pretending that his favorite snack was pork rinds, when we all knew it was popcorn and a Walker martini, three parts gin and one part vodka. As Molly wrote, there are certain minimal standards for citizenship. Real Texans do not use the word summer as a verb. <laughs> Real Texans do not wear blue slacks with little green whales all over them. And real Texans never refer to trouble as deep doo-doo. Alaska is called the last frontier, but it's a different kind of frontier than Texas or California. And not only because it's so dark, rainy, and cold up there that Sarah Palin put a tanning bed into the governor's mansion in Juneau. Alaska is just more offbeat, which you know if you saw Northern Exposure. There's a saying among single women in Alaska about the men there. The odds are good, but the goods are odd. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd hear a vice presidential nominee at a national convention being praised for knowing how to field dress a moose. I never heard the term up until then. If you look up field dressing a moose on the internet, it's pretty graphic, starting with break the breastbone and ending with sever the windpipe and gullet from the head. Palin inspired horror in some quarters. Tina Fey said she would leave Earth if Palin were elected. <laughs> and she inspired adoration in others. Joe Sixpack guys with six packs on their abs would show up at Palin's rally, painting their naked chest to spell out the word maverick as though they were at a football game screaming for the hottest governor from the coldest state, as they called her. The Alaska governor personally revived not only her party's base, but she also revived Saturday Night Live <laughs> and helped boost the ratings of Tina Fey's struggling 30 Rock. I went to the taping of Saturday Night Live to see the most famous face-off of the campaign, Tina Fey's Mavericky Sarah Palin versus Sarah Palin's Caribou Barbie. Tina Fey won. <laughs> Fey's teenage crush, John Stewart, said she had the best line of the year when she played Sarah Palin and said, I believe marriage is meant to be a sacred institution between two unwilling teenagers. <laughs> A visiting screenwriter backstage that night saw Mark Wahlberg, who had a cameo on the show, and a donkey from the show, and Palin, and her Secret Service agents in a parade, and marveled, this is like a Fellini movie. <laughs> 
Palin appeared on the show that Josh Brolin, the star of the movie W, hosted, and the director of the movie made a cameo appearance. Palin didn't know who Oliver Stone was when she saw him at a dress rehearsal. Even after she was told his name, she still didn't know who he was. That's something that is bound to make the conspiratorial director even more paranoid. (laughs) I was standing next to Palin's Secret Service agents backstage, and even they seemed a little bemused to be watching a vice presidential candidate raise the roof in a hip-hop skit in which Amy Poehler rapped, In Wasilla, we just chill, baby, chilla. But when I see oil, it's drill, baby, drilla. As the song wound down, Polar shot an unwitting moose that had wandered onto the stage. Polar had written a line about the Palin's romantic life that played off the drill baby drilla theme, but McCain aides were on hand to censor it. Songs tweaking Palin have been making the online rounds. One set to the tune of Hey There Delilah by the Plain White Tees begins... Hey, Sarah Palin, do you tell them in Wasilla that 4,000 years ago we roamed the planet with Godzilla? (laughs) I flew up to Wasilla for a week to saute myself in Saranus. Alaska is called the last frontier. Oh, I think I told you that part already, yeah. Just wandering around the huge Walmart in Wasilla, Alaska, Sarah's hometown gives you a frontier feel. There are racks of Remingtons and Brownings. There are game bags for caribou, machines to squish cows into beef jerky, and fiendish little devices that imitate rabbits and young deer and coyotes to draw your quarry in so you can shoot it. scary for a city girl like me. But I've learned that it works really well to get the attention of inattentive waiters in fancy Washington restaurants. (laughs) Before I went to Alaska, I had to go to Macy's in St. Paul to get some warm sweatshirts and socks. Little did I know that Sarah was going on a shopping spree at the same time to prepare herself for her odyssey of self-discovery in the lower 48. (laughs) Palin, who had been waxing eloquent about the charms of Joe the Plumber in red state small towns as the real America, was spending $75,000 of the Republican National Committee's money on clothes at Neiman Marcus and another $50,000 at Saks. Everyone knows you can't find real Americans at Neiman's and Saks. You've got to go to Armani and Barney's for that. (laughs) Palin's advisors explain the Marie Antoinette lavishness by the governor who purports to be a hockey mom, a fiscal and ethical reformer, by saying that she needed new clothes to match the climates across the 50 states. Mike Murphy, the witty Republican strategist who was in charge of McCain when he was still McCain in 2000, offered faux Republican spin defending Palin in a blog when the story broke. What you sneering critics and the liberal mainstream media failed to see here is, he said, a jobs program. Sachs floor walkers, cashiers, a team of sweating porters to haul the merchandise from the store to the motorcade, chiropractors to treat those porters, 
Sarah Palin knows how to create jobs. <laughs> this clothing budget belonged to the Walmart hockey mom who scorned the elites. Treating Sarah Palin like Eliza Doolittle, or no little, in My Fair Lady, the McCain campaign got Palin a voice coach before her Republican convention speech and built it on the campaign finance report as operating expenditures slash get out the vote consulting. Apparently, getting out the vote includes teaching the candidate the correct pronunciation of nuclear. <laughs> it was enough to make one nostalgic for the good old bargain days of John Edwards' $400 haircuts. <laughs> Palin labeled the McCain aides who anonymously trashed her as cowardly, mean-spirited, immature, unprofessional, and jerks. She was right. The McCain aides were brutal in their leaks about the Palins, calling them Wasilla hillbillies looting Neiman Marcus from coast to coast. They called Palin a shopaholic diva gone rogue and a whack job who didn't know that Africa was a con continent and not a country, or which countries were part of NAFTA. They let it be known that on top of the 150,000 first cited in FEC filings, Palin spent tens of thousands of dollars on more clothes, makeup, and jewelry for herself and her family, including 40,000 in luxury goods for the first dude. The campaign was charged for silk boxers and spray tanners for Todd Palin and 13 suitcases to carry all the designer duds. As one McCain aide hissed, she was still receiving shipments of custom-designed underpinnings up to her Saturday Night Live performance in October. Silk boxers and custom-designed underpinnings? Sounds like Sarah and Todd were treating the vice presidential run as a second honeymoon. <laughs> Palin should follow her own reformer precedent with the Alaska State Plain and put the borrowed underpinnings on eBay. The windfall would undergird her new presidential bid. In the end, though, I think that Sarah Palin represented a huge historic leap forward for women. When Geraldine Ferraro and Hillary Clinton ran, their fates were inextricably linked with their gender. If they failed, many women felt there was an X through the whole X chromosome, a blot on the female copybook. If not this woman now, Hillary's supporters would ardently ask me, what woman ever? But Palin could come across as utterly unready to lead the world or even find the world on a map. <laughs> and that doesn't ref reflect poorly on women as a whole. It only means that Sarah doesn't have enough mind grapes or thoughtsicles, as, as Tracy Morgan refers to brain droppings on 30 Rock, to be president soon. I thought the Bush president's relationship with the English language was tortured before I covered Palin. <laughs> the governor talks in a style I call frontier Baroque, and her <laughs> homespun haikus often bear a disturbing resemblance to Yoda's. Yoda once sagely observed, when 900 years old you reach, look as good you will not. When Katie Couric asked Sarah Palin if she'd ever negotiated with the Russians, she offered this undiagrammable sentence. It is from Alaska that we send those out to make sure that an eye is being kept on this very powerful nation, Russia, because they are right there.
Unfortunately, Tina Fey retired from her role playing Palin, turning over her wig to Kristen Wiig before the wild, words, wild wordsmith of Wasilla, as my fellow columnist Dick Cavett calls Palin, made this comment last week about Africa to Greta von Susteren. My concern has been the atrocities there in Darfur and the relevance to me with that issue as we spoke about Africa and some of the countries there that were kind of the people succumbing to the dictators and the corruption of some collapsed governments on the continent. The relevance was Alaska's investment in Darfur with some of our permanent fund dollars. And she concluded, never ever did I talk about, well, gee, is it a country or a continent? I just don't know about this issue. Andy Barowitz, the humorist, had a, a, you know, he puts out these satirical headlines and he had one today about, you know, how alarming it is that President-elect Obama is talking in full sentences. <laughs> the only thing nearly as entertaining as watching Sarah Palin play dress-up during the campaign was watching Bill Clinton get his revenge on Obama by damning him with faint praise. The Big Dog spent a lot of time on TV promoting not only his Clinton Global Initiative, but McCain and Palin. He talked about what a great man McCain is and how he understood why Palin was so hot. At the end of September, Bill explained his delay in campaigning for Obama in Florida by telling Larry King he couldn't campaign until after the Jewish holidays. Larry King looked at him quizzically and asked, are you feeling kind of Jewish that you're waiting? until after the Jewish holidays. My sources tell me now that Bill is still grumpy at Obama because he hates all the unflattering comparisons between his slow, stumbling transition and Obama's smooth, swift one. Bill was more the stay up all night and have a bull session, cram for the exam at the last minute, have the interns order in some pizza, get around to staffing the White House a few months down the line, sort of president-elect. He elevated his chaotic personality into a management style. Obama elevates his zen-like calm to a management style. Renegade, that's Obama's Secret Service code name, doesn't get rattled by the financial markets and car industry crashing around his head. But he may get rattled when they take away his beloved Blackberry. Presidents are not supposed to use email because of security and because it would become part of the public record subject to subpoenas. His emails, he emails the same way I do in short sentences. He's not the emoticon type. When a friend congratulated him on winning the presidency, he replied, how about that? <laughs> On Monday, Obama met in Chicago with John McCain, doing what W promised to do and never did, extending a bipartisan hand. The McCain that ran in the race was not the one I knew for 15 years. That old McCain would have mercilessly mocked the silliness of Joe the plumber and Tito the builder. McCain tried to paint Obama as a dangerous enigma, but in an odd reversal, it was McCain who turned out to be the enigma even though he entered the race with one of the best brands in American politics. Obama sashayed onto the trail two years ago as an aloof and exotic mystery man with a slim record and a strange name. His first name rhymed with Iraq, his second was the same as the loathed Iraqi dictator we toppled, and his last name was one letter away from the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. 
Yet by the end of the campaign, it was Barack Hussein Obama who came across as the steadier brand than McCain. The McCain campaign specialized in erratica, while the Obama campaign always avoided any dramatica. It was impossible for the Republicans to paint Obama as a socialist when the Bush administration was nationalizing the banks. <laughs> Whoever thought when socialism came to America, it would be ushered in not by Bolsheviks in blue jeans, but by Wall Street bankers and Gucci loafers. <laughs> The moral of this Bush administration, the lesson that will go down in history, is that even people with great experience can drive the country off a cliff. Maybe faster because they've got secret agendas, decades old, or because they're so cosseted by the bureaucracy that they're not as sharp in pression as they should be. After years of trying to reverse the New Deal, W. and Cheney ushered in a new New Deal. W's advisors had hundreds of years worth of high-level government experience, but they bungled the occupation of Iraq and let a great American city drown and allowed so much irresponsible deregulation and deficit spending that the economy melted down. And they still haven't smoked Osama bin Laden out of his cave and brought him in, dead or alive. Al-Qaeda is still putting out more tapes than Madonna, <laughs> and even put out a new one from their Flintstone studio, <laughs> insulting the president-elect Condi Rice and Colin Powell as House Negroes. The Bush administration downgraded the search for Osama because they didn't know his address. It doesn't seem that hard. Now that we have a technological president, we can probably find him on Google Earth. <laughs> There have been many awful mistakes made in this country, but now we have another chance. So bring on the rookie from Chicago and the White House golden doodle puppy and the Obama girls with their oodles of charm. And let's hope President Obama makes good in his promise to replace Bill Clinton's hot tub with a basketball court. Much classier. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I have a little part of a, a new little bit of a job for you, because I'd love to see one of your columns written about something about the financial crisis. So it sort of has a, to do a little bit with math. So if you'll think about this, uh, could you possibly write one of your columns with this type of a slant? And that would be to take all of the bailout money, whatever we have left, you know, from the three planes and everything you know, that got spent today, I guess. So whatever we have left, to divide that by the amount of homes that the people took their loans on, and I think you're going to find that there weren't that many homes. In other words, some of that bailout money, there might be even money left over. So I thought that was kind of an interesting slant. To, to put out there and to see if all of that money could be divided uh, that people owe on these homes, whether or not you feel these people, you know, hurt the system, didn't have high character enough because they got a lower interest rate and because someone was, you know, selling them the interest rate, a broker and where was his character, or however you want to judge if you're a Republican or whatever, all those angles. Yeah, you know, but yeah, you know, um, people often ask me, they think I'm 
don't like someone or I'm mad at someone I'm writing about in politics. And I don't, I do it from a much more cerebral point of view in politics. But I'll tell you the two things that have really made me mad. I'm not, I did do one on AIG, but I, uh, you know, I feel like I'm not really an expert in the car company. But, but a, the AIG taking that bailout money and then going on spa resort trip after spa resort trip, and now the car company guys, you know, refusing to accept where the industry was headed and give customers what they wanted, and now just showing up in their jets for more billions really infuriates me. And at one point, Obama said he wanted the AIG uh, heads to come to Washington and bring him a check. This was before he was elected. Bring him a check for the money they spent on the spa resorts, and then he'd like to fire them. And I just wish he would do that with all of these guys. Thank you. We're just going to take two more questions, and then a reminder at the conclusion, there'll be a book signing up here on the stage. So two more questions. The question's right over here. Hi. Um, Hi. I was wondering if you ever talked to Judith Miller and what you think of um, embedded reporters both in the war and then also kind of on the campaign trail. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't talked to her, but I did see that she's being played by Kate Beckinsdale in a movie, so I'm jealous. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And um, embedded reporters, uh, you know, everything has its risks. They did some amazing coverage uh, during, uh, the, you know, going into Afghanistan, and I guess... There were some problems too, but you don't have to be embedded as a reporter not, you know, to be um, overly won over by the people you cover. I think it's been a really bad decade for journalism. I mean, and journalists are citizens, and everyone was feeling patriotic after 9-11, but... Um, it was hard because it was hard to stand up to the president at that point and Bill Maher lost his job and but journalists have to remember it's not a popularity contest and they have to be really tough and again it's hard now because Howie Kurtz of the Washington Post the media critics said reporters are treating Obama like he's walking on water and when are they going to stop and you know I do know it's hard um but I think that journalism has got to step it up. And, and we can never, ever let anything like that lead up to the Iraq war happen again. That was not a good situation for us. Hello, I'm a Hi. really big, big fan. Um, and I was just wondering, um, I enjoy your writing quite a bit, and I was hoping you might share who are your favorite contemporary writers. Ah, that's a good question. I, um, contemporary is the problem word. <laughs> I, keep, I keep going back and reading, you know, Edith Wharton and Jane Austen and Evelyn Waugh over and over again because I find, and Shakespeare, um, because I find so many contemporary lessons. And this, when people say to me, um, you know, are you worried? You might be going out of business. I went to interview a guy in Pasadena who is 
uh, running a thing called Pasadena Now online where he's outsourced coverage of the Pasadena City Council to um, Indians in <laughs> Bangalore. So Indians are covering, you know, the plastic shopping bag dispute in the Pasadena City Council. And he told me my days were numbered, if not my hours. But... Um, but I, um, I never get worried about journalism because I think that the important thing is the narrative and the story. And we're telling the same stories. You know, covering this Bush White House was very much like Shakespeare. You know, and it's all about the human, um, human nature and how power warps human nature. And... There's something about the White House. I would highly recommend Arthur Schlesinger's diaries, which I reviewed for the Times. And he said, too, there's something about being in the White House that makes you nuts. You know, I walked down there the night of the election just to look at it, thinking it's such a pretty house to have driven so many presidents nuts. <laughs> and um, so anyway, I don't care if I get the story on a, on a cell phone or if I get it by pigeon carrier, or, you know, how I get it. I think there are always going to be amazing stories, and there's always going to be a place for journalists to watch those in power to make sure they don't abuse power. And um, so I keep going back and reading uh, Shakespeare, because I just think it's the most modern thing you can ever read. So anyway, thank you guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.